Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Last summer, I had a chance at CNU in Buffalo to meet Ben Hamilton Bailey. We did the podcast and we had a great conversation afterwards. Kind of been able to follow up with him. And he actually suggested that we do another podcast. And uh, of course, I wanted to take him up on that. I thought we had a, a great conversation. I think he has a ton to add to the dialogue we're having here in the States. So today you're going to get essentially part two of a Ben Hamilton Bailey conversation. Want to remind everybody, we're getting close to the end of the year. We are in our membership drive time. So if you are a listener to this podcast, if you appreciate the work that we do here and the stuff that we produce on a weekly basis, head over to the website, strongtowns.org, become a member, make a donation, do what you can to help us continue to grow this organization to grow uh, our ability to provide you with all the stuff that we do and, and really grow this movement and share this message across the entire country and to some extent, the world. Thanks, everybody. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, I have a returning guest, Ben Hamilton Bailey. He's over in Bristol, and I'm in my little hometown of Brainerd, Minnesota. Welcome back to the podcast, Ben. Thank you, Chuck. Good to be back. You come back for round two. You and I chatted at CNU. I want to let people know that they can go back and look at show 179, which is the one that you and I chatted on, had a really yep. nice conversation, then shut off the recorder and talked for probably another 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and yep. that was actually, you know, even more interesting than the podcast we recorded. So I'm glad for a, a second bite at the apple, so to speak. I wanted to, without repeating what we did before, because I want people to go back and listen to that one. Like you explained the shared space and the whole Hans Monerman story was beautiful. And I think give people a really good idea, but maybe for the people that haven't done that, could we just talk about one of the examples you gave at CNU was about this Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Israel as a juxtaposition of adjacent neighborhoods where people had a different view of traffic and, and their interaction with it as pedestrians. Could you tell that story as a way to kind of set up the conversation sure. I'd like to have? Well, a shared space depends on a number of uh, fundamental building blocks to explain and to understand why uh, something that's as counterintuitive as allowing removing signal controls and removing the regulatory framework allows for more efficient and more civilized interactions. And one of those building blocks is something that's rather prosaically called risk compensation effect. Um, what that term describes is a much bigger uh, change in our awareness and understanding of safety and risk and all the complexities that surrounds the concepts of safety and, and how we behave and respond to hazards and, and our environment. I'm very thankful in that early on when I was interested in researching this subject, I came across a Canadian academic living in London, a very charming professor of geography at University College London called Professor John Adams, good American name, 
Uh, he's lived in London, an expat Canadian, a long time. And for the past 40 years or so, he has been primarily interested in the concept of risk and how we perceive and respond to the question of risk. So, like in the States, we have a, a health and safety executive, you know, concerned with people's safety and so on, and the Department for Transport for whom they would say safety is paramount. And John Adams has been a thorn in their side for 40 years, because he argues and has increasingly convinces people that unless you understand what safety is, a lot of what we do can be counterintuitive. So he's written books called Risk and Freedom. He's particularly interested in transport. But also his 1995 book, Risk, which is the one I illustrated at CNU, really is the best exploration of uh, risk compensation effect. And I came across Adams's work uh, from a number of sources at a time he was famous or notorious, depending on your viewpoint, for being the sole, the lone voice to oppose the legislation on seatbelts. That the introduction of seatbelt legislation, he argued, was both unsafe and immoral. Pause there for a sec, because I did read the book after you recommended it to me. It's a counterintuitive argument, but one that really is based not only on data that he's collected, but a kind of deeper understanding of human response that is kind of absent from often from the engineering profession. But go ahead, yeah. keep going on, on that. Yeah, I mean, so he said, like many examples, the introduction of ABS systems, uh, anti-skid braking systems into cars about 15 years ago, first marketed as a safety device, seemed logical, must be safer to have brakes that won't skid or cars that won't skid. But as he pointed out, it merely resulted in drivers adjusting their behavior to take account of that uh, technology so they drove a little bit faster. You know, we get lots of Very snow here. And I have to say, when I'm driving the car without analog brakes, I'm a much slower and more cautious driver than the one with the analog brakes because I, I know I'm not going to have the stop time with the other I'll, car. If, if I can indulge, I'll just take one anecdote I was very impressed by. John Adams, we were both invited to speak at an extremely boring traffic engineers conference on some piece of uh, tedious pol government policy. And uh, so we both reluctantly agreed and went up to some conference center in Birmingham in the middle of England in December. It was unusual for Birmingham because that day we had a, a heavy snowfall, very unusual in, in Britain, but with deep snow, a lovely modern glass conference hall, and we could amuse ourselves with the boring introductory speeches by watching the snow settle on the canals outside. There was then a coffee break. And this, this conference was attended mainly by directors of highways, almost all men, of course, who in the coffee break were all to a man on their cell phones, checking out with their depots about whether they're salting lorries and uh, snow plows and anti-ice clearing equipment was out on the roads. And Adams had the sense to notice this and sprinted up to the control box. In those days, you had, you know, physical slides. And he inserted an additional slide at the front of his presentation, which is a simple graph that shows an average numbers of people killed on the roads per year and temperature. So, sure enough, when the temperature drops below freezing, less people are killed on the roads. The numbers drop spectacularly, especially in deep snowfall. So right? counterintuitive, yeah. So he put up this slide to begin with, and 
He said, I'm sure you're familiar with the observations about uh, weather. And, and of course, all these men nodded sagely. <laughs> and so he said, you know, aware that, you know, today was great. It's snowing heavily. So I was very glad to see an interview that in the interval that all of you were on your phones to your depots advising them not to go out this morning because all of you have policies that say road safety is paramount. If you think road safety is paramount, then you should not be sending out your snowplows today. However, if you think that keeping the roads open is paramount and you want to kill people, send your snowplows out. You decide. <laughs> and of course, you know, you can see the steam coming out of the ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do we process this? What the hell is this about? You know? Yeah. But he was, his logic was absolutely un, un, unimpeachable. But come back to the story of the Orthodox Jews of Benai Brak. It's merely one of many, many examples that Adams uses to illustrate risk compensation effect. And he noticed in a copy of The New Scientist a piece about the Benai Brak Jews of Tel Aviv. The Benai Brak occupy a, a fairly well-defined area of Tel Aviv, a fairly dense population, they are very identifiable. They have, you know, wear these big hats and long beards and what have you. And uh, for whatever reason, they are the world's worst pedestrians. They, they never use the crossings. They never look left and right. They never hold their children. They just walk straight out in front of traffic. The article was actually about why they do this, because maybe they think God will protect them or, or you know, whatever. But Adam says that's not actually what's interesting. What's interesting is that the next door or nearby neighborhood which is, we can identify with the same population density and the same volume of traffic, but made up predominantly of secular Jews, mainly of uh, German and, and Central European extraction, who are, of course, culturally very obedient. Uh, anybody sure. who's been to Germany will know that people stand to attention at 3 o'clock in the morning waiting for the pedestrian lights to change. You know, <laughs> well, they, no they, they're very, <laughs> very <laughs> virtuous citizens, very good pedestrians. And, of course, what he discovered when he dug into it was that the aberrant behavior, pedestrian behavior of the blind black Jews made no difference to the road safety statistics. On the contrary, it actually improved it. Why? Because drivers aren't stupid. The taxi drivers and the drivers going through the blind black region of Tel Aviv realize that if you're going to drive through this area, these guys are crazy. You've got to have eyes in the back of your head. You've got to drive dead carefully. So, uh, paradoxically, the jaywalking behavior of the Blyback Jews was adding to the general road safety. Now, the, the conclusion that one comes to is that jaywalking makes streets safer. Simple as that. And that would be entirely consistent with Adam's theory, that, and indeed one that reflected my own experience with a pioneer of uh, the Bonaf, Joost Val, who said, you know, the only way you make streets safe is you must make them dangerous then they become safe. Yeah, yeah. In other words, make sure that the person driving the half ton of metal feels a little bit unsafe. You and I off the air last time talked about the transition that would be delightful if we could do it, uh, where a car would enter into the city and then all of a sudden there would become something that would make the driver more essentially accountable for yeah. an accident. Right now, if a driver going 30 miles an hour hits a pedestrian, that's a pretty one-sided encounter. The Risk book by John Adams, he actually talks about a scenario where I want to say he said something about like either razors on the steering wheel or yeah, a, yeah. a, 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 a planet coming out of the center of the steering wheel. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, yeah. And the idea being, okay, well, let's make an accident essentially 
an equal amount of danger on both sides. The idea yep. being if there's an equal amount of danger on both sides, drivers will be much more cautious. Is that yeah. a fair Indeed. I mean, I mean, I think it would not be impossible to imagine a scenario whereby as you enter a city, a little transponder releases a, a solenoid in your car which dings off your seatbelt. Right. Your seatbelt's released. You're not allowed to wear a seatbelt in town. You're suddenly more aware that you're more vulnerable as a driver. And we would know from, I mean, all that John Adams would confirm, you drive a little bit more cautiously when you don't have a seatbelt on. So particularly if you've got small children in the back and all their seatbelts ding off and these little ones are now more vulnerable, it concentrates the mind and, and as you say, evens up the response to the surrounding relationship. So as shared space, it builds on the behavioral observations of um, risk compensation effect and also chimes with something that Hans Mondermann was very keen to stress, which is that, you know, drivers are intelligent. Driving a car is a remarkable high level of processing and that uh, never treat drivers as idiots. Drivers are absorbing and responding to a mass of information in very sophisticated ways. So make sure that the stories that you're telling the driver are appropriate to the sort of uh, streets or cities that you want to create. We have this kind of meme going around here, this obsession now with people texting while they drive. One of the things that I pointed out was that, you know, if you're driving across Nebraska, say, on the interstate where you've got literally hundreds of miles of absolutely straight, wide open road, I dare you not to text. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I, I, I would guess that most people on there are, are doing some type of distracting behavior simply because they you feel so safe and comfortable in yeah. this environment. How counterintuitive is it? This notion of texting, you know, being one of the things that people do because we've made the roads feel much safer for people yeah. when they're driving. Well, clearly the biggest problem of uh, road safety, particularly more serious injuries, is that of complacency, that drivers switch off, either literally fall asleep or their minds wander off and you're not aware of, of a, a change in circumstances or, or a particular incident. So one of the, the big challenges increasingly as cars become more comfortable and more isolated and less noisy and you know, more distant from their immediate environment is how you keep the driver engaged with his or her surroundings. You know, I don't want to get sort of drawn into the whole question about uh, texting. Uh, that's obviously an immediate issue right now. But we are on the cusp of being able to introduce driverless cars or these cars which will, for some circumstances, drive themselves. And it makes a lot of sense because uh, that's safer than having a driver if you're on, on your long journey across Nebraska, whatever, you know, why do you have to stay awake and steer the car? I right. mean, the, the car can do that for, for itself much better than you can. In a way, we, we're in a sort of interim period where you st we still have to physically control the car, even on long freeway or motorway journeys, when really it's a process much better done by uh, the, uh, the automatic systems. But in town, it's different because no computer can ever replicate the extreme complexities of a city right and the purpose of moving through a city is different you're not you're not moving through a city solely for transport you're doing so because you want the stimulation and interest and excitement and, and mystery and ambiguity and uncertainty all those things that cities offer which is what we as humans like 
when we talked this summer, I had a lot of feedback from people who got a hold of me and said, Chuck, this sounds wonderful. This sounds amazing. This sounds like a big part of the answer to the problems that we face here in the United States. How do we get started? How do we identify in, in our cities the best places to go out and undertake this kind of thing? You know, for me, my answer was, well, let's do it, you know, everywhere <laughs> where we've got <laughs> intersections, you know, but from a very practical standpoint, sure. you know, we have a long culture here in this country of building them wide, building them straight and, and driving as fast as we can. Where is the kind of Zen point that those places where you look at and say, okay, here is a really good example of where we could start to introduce this concept in a United States kind of community? It's an interesting question and it's a complex one. But first of all, the need for change from the existing status quo, the way we treat our streets to something different or one could argue return to something that existed before because shared space is nothing new streets have always until the beginning of the last century been informal public spaces which accommodated transport as well as all sorts of other activities right uh, the idea of separation and formal regulation and control is a relatively new concept in in cities i mean if american cities are newer of course but for european cities it's a very new concept still but the drive to change comes uh, from a number of sources sometimes the issue is driven by road safety by concerns about people being killed or injured on roads. And, and in a way, that's what inspired Hans Mondermann. He was in charge of road safety, and he had a very clear, uh, very powerful political mandate to reduce particularly the number of child pedestrian deaths in the north of Holland, something he did very successfully. Sometimes uh, schemes are involved because of concerns about congestion, that where, where you get junctions or spaces that just aren't working well, and people get frustrated that so much time is spent sitting in cars and clogged up uh, traffic and, and so forth. And sometimes there are, uh, there are other reasons. There are concerns about the, the barrier effect of roads that you get, you know, big uh, social and economic contours opening up where roads cut off one community from another. But uh, those things usually are combined and are almost always overridden by, you know, Bill Clinton's, it's the economy, stupid. It's usually driven by economic need. Right. As we know, towns, villages, cities are having to change dramatically in our lifetime to cope with a huge change in their purpose. Uh, whereas in the past, towns had to provide a physical marketplace for goods and services. So if you wanted to buy a book or a washing machine or a, a new pair of clothes or, or a hat or, or uh, whatever, you had to come into town to acquire and trade and, and, and that process. Now that's no longer necessary. It will stuff will be delivered to you by you know, some, some internet firm or something like that. And likewise, if I want to talk to my... A lawyer or, or, or even a, a potential partner, I do that online. I don't hang around, you know. So that the, the very fundamental purpose of towns is changing. So suddenly towns are realizing that if they're to survive, if they're to exist anymore, then they have to change from being functional necessities to being places that attract people because it's what we want to do as humans, that we, we like to congregate, we like to know what's going on or we like to be mystified or baffled or intrigued or reassured or all sorts of other emotions. And that has a 
huge implications for how we handle streets, which represent the, the primary public space of most most towns. So in answer to where do you start, it's usually because of economic factors, that towns are dying and that that has big social, uh, economic, and political concerns. So Poynton, for example, is a classic example, Ashford and Kent, another one, where urgent action was necessary because the town was quite self-evidently dying because people were just not finding it an attractive place to spend their time or money. And the way to tackle that, in both the case of both Ashford and Poynton, was through changing the relationship of the town with traffic. And that meant street design and that meant junction design and traffic lights and all the rest of it. But throughout, the issue was, although, you know, Poynton was terribly badly congested and had a pretty bad safety record as well, they weren't the prime drivers, actually. We've almost learned fact- to tolerate some of those things. We tolerate some of those things, yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we put up with a certain number of deaths on the, on the road right. uh, as the price we pay for the remarkable freedom of the movement that we enjoy. And we'll even tolerate, you know, as, as you know, people will tolerate congestion. It's, it's, it's just what we live with. But we, we generally get pretty unhappy when the last of the little mum-and-pop corner shops goes and you've got to, you have to get in your car to drive 10 miles to pick up a pint of milk. Because right. as soon as that happens you've got severe social imbalance because a large proportion of the population, whether they're too old or too young or too poor, doesn't have access to a private car. And that means that they are paying a huge premium to be deprived of that access to out-of-town superstores. Right. Now, that's a situation that already prevails to a large extent, much worse in the States than in Europe. Yes. My wife and I have just been to Louisiana and Mississippi, and we kept walking around walked around a, I don't know, a little town called Natchez in Mississippi. Lovely, lovely, beautiful place on the edge of the river and wonderful historic buildings. It survived the Civil War and, and, and has generally got a lot to offer. But we kept saying, why the heck do people shop here? Right. When you go to buy your groceries or your pint of milk or your hardware or, your, you know, where else do you go? Yep. Way the answer was miles away. Right. So you had to have a car. Right now there's this conversation going on about yeah, uh, the percent of our GDP that the federal government is spending on transportation is at all-time lows, right? Right. But yet, when you look, you know, we uh, require our families to spend enormous sums of money on transportation. You know, in the UK, there's more of a balance there. The families aren't spending as much. From a public standpoint, you're spending maybe a little bit more. Yeah. We do yeah. have that relationship. And the thing that it does, obviously, is once you buy a car, the marginal cost of driving five miles versus five blocks is uh, is minimal. It's, it's nothing. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, let's come back to the question of sort of where do you start? Where do you start? I, I think that there's a number of approaches. Uh, Hans Mondemann and his team tended to start in relatively small rural, small communities which often had through traffic and were either cut off or were bothered. You know, there was political concern. In the case of Hans, it was because uh, children were being killed by speeding drivers. But certainly small-scale villages uh, allow you to, to build up a set of a bit experience and an understanding of this concept, you know, without having to um, make the sort of investment that really major urban projects require. Right. 
you know, the village schemes can be um, small scale interventions can build up the sort of both the experience that you need from the designers and, and, and engineers and planners and so on, but also raise the political confidence that, that this is possible. But I, th I think it's also useful to have to find ways uh, to have one or two higher profile schemes. In the UK, we've been lucky enough with uh, Exhibition Road to have a, I mean, it's a, it's a very peculiar street in lots of ways, but it's a project which, you know, internationally well known, it serves all the great, you know, cultural institutions of London, and visited by the hundreds of thousands of tourists a year and, and, and visitors to the museums and institutions. And so it lays out for you an example of what a street could be we should we can have something different and that was has been useful so certainly the first schemes are the hard ones once you've got an exhibition road or a Poynton or an ashford the second and third schemes are much easier to get going you can take people there when we were doing ashford we i had to take the politicians and engineers very skeptical most of them out to the netherlands denmark sweden germany and you can do it, but it's expensive and, you know, it's, it requires a lot of organizational time and effort and so forth. And, of course, there's a danger that whilst you may, they all got it, you know, understand as soon as you came back. But, oh, well, it's the Dutch, you know, they're kind of always staying out of their minds all the time. Or, you know, they're different people. They're culturally different to us. It would never, it may well work over there, but they're so civilized or whatever it is. It's a myth, this difference, because humans are the same, as we know, the world over. And all you're doing is, is working with the grain of human behavior. Right. But nevertheless, you have to overcome the initial skepticism that an idea which has its seeds in a foreign part of the world could apply somewhere else. And I, the most frequent question I, I, or comment I ever get when I'm talking about shared space is, ah, oh, well, it would work over in, the civilized uh, Denmark or Germany, but it would never work with the aggressive drivers of the UK. Something that you, if you relate that to my Dutch, Danish, German, or Swedish friends, are utterly amazed. They yeah. say, aggressive UK drivers? You've seen nothing. <laughs> we would die to have that. Oh, no, after you, after you, madam, all that kind of um, ridiculous uh, British sort of deference. Um, we, you know, there's a much more aggressive Danish drivers. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and likewise, people say, well, it's fine. It would never work in those sort of Latin, uh, sort of macho culture. I went to Argentina recently and the little regional capital, Salta, up in the northwest. Fantastically successful piece of shared space right in the heart of their town center. Yeah. Working perfectly well with uh, Argentinian drivers and pedestrians and cyclists and traders and everybody else. So this, this cultural issue is one that one has to accept. It's a barrier to uh, in, a lot of politicians often, although actually it's, it's, it's irrelevant. You can learn lessons from any part of the world right. and apply them just as well. That's not to say that in, you know, in the States you have to work harder at things like placemaking and context-specific design because most American cities are built post-automobile right. and have generally less layers of historical reference as you go through them, which is, can be very useful for good street design. But that's, not, that's just a question of having to work a bit harder, that's all. Right. When you're working in the U.S., and for people here who are 
interested in going forward with this. A lot of the stuff that I get is, well, the engineer will never go for it. The engineers don't get it. Sure. They freak out about liability. It's not in the Ashto guidelines. How do you overcome that technical barrier? Is it just as simple as find an engineer who gets it? Because there's a number of them here that do. Or is there some education process we can go through to help that you know, backcountry engineer actually realize that this is not only safer, but lower cost and, you know, better traffic flow yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. Well, I think you do have to uh, pursue change at a whole number of different levels. You can't just concentrate on national policy because you can, you can waste your life doing that. Right. And you can't afford to just concentrate on practical schemes on the ground because the policymakers will never notice it. I've always tried, and, and colleagues uh, have always tried, to both simultaneously build up practical experience on the ground to generate the, as it were, academic and theoretical constructs. People like John Adams and, 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 and so on have understood some of the theoretical background to why this behavior is happening. And then tackle policy at both governmental and also institutional level. So you have to, you know, it's boring, but you spend time going to tedious conferences of the boring institutions that traffic engineers go to, you know, whether it's the ICE or ACE or I don't know what, you know, American Institute of Engineers, I can't remember what they're all called now. But they're all very dull and they're mostly male and they mostly wear striped polyester ties and they're, and they're mostly uh, repeating stuff they've already done. But if you can go and demonstrate a different way to achieve the objectives in which they're interested, you know, road safety or improvements in congestion or whatever it is, then you begin to influence policy. And in Britain, of course, we had the breakthrough when the Department for Transport, our government uh, department responsible, produced Manual for Streets. Now, Manual for Streets actually doesn't say anything that, that you or I wouldn't be entirely familiar with, but it was great to have a government statement that says streets are places in their own right as well as corridors for movement. And it's the job of the engineer not to follow guidance, but to think for himself, to use his professional judgment to arrive at the most appropriate solution for cities, not for transport, because transport isn't an end in its own right, but for cities and towns. It's easy to be cynical about manual for streets, but boy, it's made life easier. Eventually, you know, the Ashto guidelines or whatever it is in the States will begin to reflect the experience that's being gathered, not just in the States, but around the world. It's already beginning to happen, actually. Yeah. And if you go to go to um, equivalent uh, conferences in America, it, you know, shared space is at least not unknown, even if it's not fully accepted, people beginning to think about it and take an interest in those schemes. It's a slow process, but, but, but I think that the more stuff, you, you know, policy is, never comes out of the blue. It's driven by practical experience on the ground. So you have to have, you know, some local, good local politician determining to change things in, in the case in Britain, Council Daniel Moylan attacking Kensington High Street and Nature Exhibition Road was very helpful. And it is helpful that he was a very kind of establishment politician. He was a Tory um, you know, was a, a advisor to the Mayor of London. And, and you know, he, he's, he doesn't look like a kind of sure, sure. radical weirdo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's very, very you know, useful person to have. 
And so I think, as I explained before, you change of this kind needs three things in parallel to happen. Firstly, there's a, a range of skills, design skills, engineering skills, techniques in placemaking and transition places and street design, which, you know, you can, they can be learned. They're not easy, but they can be learned. And it's a matter of the design schools understanding this and engineers insisting on it and, and, and people going to visit other places and observing what's happening and, and, and allowing intelligent engineers to, to come through the system. But that's, and that's fine, but that's hopeless without two other things. Firstly, great towns, great streets and places require an organizational change in municipalities. It requires it to be clear who is responsible for creating your public space. Sure. Now, if I go into most city halls and say, who's responsible for your streets? They'll be quite puzzled by that. Yes. Yeah. Well, so-and-so is responsible for public works. traffic signals, yeah. and somebody's responsible for public works, somebody else is responsible for the trees, somebody else is responsible for the lights, somebody else is responsible for the road safety, somebody else is responsible for routes to schools. So, you know, there'll be half a dozen people at least right. will be responsible. And they probably won't, don't know each other. And if they do, they probably hate each other. Right. Now, you never create great streets through such fragmentation. So there's an organizational challenge for municipalities in the light of the changing purpose of towns, which I referred to earlier, to rethink the structure of how we make decisions and how we implement change in the public realm, in, right. in streets. And it requires uh, many professionals to redefine their role and their status, to take off their uniforms and to become city builders again. Yes. And, and, and just thirdly, you, yeah, need yeah, a vision. you need a political vision for what you want in your cities to be in the first place. And right. That's not, that's not a technical question. That's a political question. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense because essentially when everybody's responsible, nobody's responsible. And, you know, I think what you see in our streets today is that fact that, you know, our, our governments are at the local level very much organized in, in those silos where nobody really is responsible for what we at Strong Towns call the value creation. Yeah, who's yeah. out there building value in the public realm? Nobody. No. And nor have we developed a mechanism for investing and recouping the benefit from investment in the public realm. Right. Uh, for example, a very conservative study of just the first two years of trading after the Poynton scheme Remember the Poynton scheme in Cheshire, it cost, uh, well, three million pounds. It cost another million because a sewer had collapsed, but that's another story. Let's say four million pounds. Yeah. Economists recently just totted up the increase in property values and trading values from the immediate uh, surroundings to a fountain place in Poynton, not going very far from the center. And at a conservative estimate, there's an upgrade in value of about 130 million pounds. Right. Th those are high return investments. Uh, return investments. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Now you know that that's it's a no-brainer that investing that much money is worthwhile, but of course we haven't yet got a mechanism whereby people can cross-subsidize that investment um, and seeing a return on their property, but but contributing to it at the same time. And as uh, Councillor Howard Murray, the politician responsible for Poynton, brilliantly always says, he always starts his talks by saying. The scheme was done entirely for my own personal financial benefit. Because <laughs> <laughs> I live in Poynton and the value of my house has gone up 27%. Let me ask you a very technical question. In the UK, from a tax standpoint, do you have a land tax, a property tax? How would an increase like that change the revenue stream for a local government? 
It's often quite difficult. It's actually more difficult, in, fa in fact, than in the States. Uh, we do have uh, what are called business rates, you know, business taxes, uh, as well as property taxes, uh, rates, council tax, as it's called. And that rather clumsily and slowly goes up with the value of your property. Every five years or so, there's a re-evaluation. But it's a very slow and clumsy way to incentivize investment in the public realm. It's a slow process. Normally, there's more sort of haphazard grants and funding programs available to assist towns or places or high streets or main streets that are obviously struggling. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, like in the States, you know, you get economic decline in South Wales or Northeast England or, you know, Northern Ireland or whatever it is. And all sorts of funding streams are available to help uh, restructure the economies of those areas to to uh, help them recover. But it isn't a very coherent uh, cross-subsidizing system. But one of the pushbacks that I get occasionally when I've gone in as an engineer and said, Here, here's an improvement and, and the benefit here is that we're going to improve property values. People stand up and say, well, wait a sec, I don't want my property values going up. I do when I sell my place, but I'm not planning to sell, so that's just going to increase my taxes. Exactly. Do you, yeah. do you run into that occasionally? Yes, yes, we do. Uh, it's a difficult area. I mean, the, the thing that's encouraged me most um, in, in recent years has been um, the growing, uh, what's sometimes called uh, localism amongst communities. In other words, We've tended to have uh, the idea of streets and, and traffic is responsibility of a higher government authority. You have to rely on the county council in our case or the state in, in your case to do anything. And we're now reaching a point, particularly since the 2008 crash, where, where people recognize that it's no longer possible. They're never, gonna, never again is that going to be the case that the state or the county council does everything for you. Right. Communities are going to have to do stuff for themselves. And that requires finding mechanisms for allowing people to use their energies and their skills and their funds, indeed, to invest in streets. I was working with a little, a small rural community in Hampshire called Berriton. It's, you know, it's a lovely little place, but it's not very big. But it's, there's some fairly well-educated and well-to-do people living there because it's a very pretty place to live and it's well-connected to London. And they became aware that their streetscapes were declining um, as the sort of suburbanization began to encroach and uh, a big highway nearby was taking in more and more signs and, and, and barriers and, and traffic signals and so on, creeping ever closer. Uh, and so they called us in to give, us some, give them some advice and we gave them a very quick, cheap and cheerful study. I was delighted to find that they then went about um, raising their own funds from a variety of sources, some of them private contributions, some of them little bits of ground here, there, and everywhere, and put in place many of the recommendations that we made without any formal contribution from the highway authority. They did it with the agreement and say-so and, and support of the highway authority, but no money from them. And as a result, the work that was done was done with a terrific care and individuality and, and distinctiveness, which is, in a way, added to the, 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 those qualities. Now, it's, it's a tiny scheme. It's, you know, under sure. 50,000 pounds, that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's chicken feed. Yeah. And we have to accept that, you know, works to streets are very expensive. I mean, by 
streets are have hard working places they have to you know withstand lots of the elements and traffic and right. different uses and so on and it's it's not as cheap as building in the backyard but uh we're seeing more and more uh we would call them parish councils you might call them uh, uh counties or or yeah. uh, you know city councils municipalities gaining more confidence in doing things themselves and doing so in a much more creative way than was previously the case with large organizations who had to follow standard guidelines. And that's why I like David Envich's book, um, Mental Speed Bumps, because he has studied and documented and followed ways in which creativity um, and surprise and in- intrigue can help you achieve transportation ends and, and, and city ends. And for me, the, the best example I had of that was a little village called Lockeridge in Wiltshire in England uh, who had a problem with speeding traffic through their rather strange shapes or triangular-shaped uh, village with a triangular village green. And there just wasn't enough human presence around anymore, people away on working during the day or whatever, so that drivers were driving through this village almost the feeling like it was deserted. There was no one around, so speeds were creeping up. So we thought, how do we kind of repopulate this village, make activity happen? They devised, without my help, they devised this this wonderful scarecrow building competition. And over one summer, they got everybody in the village, school children, the lot, to build all to build scarecrows. And they populated this village with the most brilliantly creative scarecrows you could ever imagine. There was a you know, a Polish plumber hitchhiking his way back to Poland, and there was a bird watcher in the hedge, you know, watching the, the and there were school children running out of the school in school uniform, and there were there was a sort of wonderful gangly zebra crossing, you know, zebra wandering around the village, and and some ten year old boy had put a a scary scarecrow, you know, a crow with a with a bloody bleeding rat in its mouth hanging over the yeah, yeah. Sort of village, typical kind of ten year old. The result was that the traffic speeds dropped 30 to 40 percent. Now, that's more than you would ever get with the most ferocious traffic calming, and it was free. Right. It didn't cost anybody anything. Right. It just was a bit of fun. Um, you know, a couple of scarecrows of old women gossiping outside the church on a bench. That was enough. Yeah. Enough. To, well, what the heck's that? And as soon as the human brain has to, has to absorb interesting information or smile or respond or some emotional response, then speeds will always drop because we have to process information. It's, it's funny because I live in a tourist kind of area and people complain about the crazy tourist drivers. But when you look at the speeding tickets that the police issue, they're all for locals. Absolutely. Uh, the yeah. tourists are the ones driving cautiously and we're the ones in a big hurry to get through. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, that's that's again the thing of the complacency. It's, it's very dangerous with cars. If right. you if you if you're doing journeys where you're just not part of where you are or what you're doing in your surroundings, that's when accidents happen. Let me give you here quickly a, a chance to respond to a couple of very specific critiques that I've been sure. sent to me after you and I chatted. Here in the U.S., we have a very active cycling community. They're a small group of people from a percentage of the population-wise, but they're very well organized and they're very focused. There's a faction of them that don't like shared space. Sure. And they yeah, say, you know, it, it makes us slow down. Now we can't navigate through as quickly. We feel like it's more dangerous. How would you address people on bikes in shared space? And, yeah. and 
How would you address that particular critique? Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a debate we're having in the UK, just the same. It's the, it's the same story, and there are very much two schools of thought about how you encourage cycling. One, when my broadly call about segregation of of allocating specific road space to cyclists, and the other uh, looking to a broader approach to changing the whole environment of the street to to allow cycling to be a natural and safe part of that environment. Now, clearly, shared space fill, fits into the latter category. Now, that's not to say that, that there aren't a lot of circumstances when allocating specific space to cyclists makes a lot of sense. Clearly, there are, and on major strategic routes and, and so on. I worked on the National Cycle Network for the UK for five years, and uh, it's been instrumental in raising the confidence levels and numbers of cyclists um, and you see the same pattern happening around the world but ultimately you cannot physically create an entirely separate or segregated network for cyclists you're always going to have circumstances in which cars cycles pedestrians street traders roller skaters um, segway machines i don't know all the sorts of stuff that goes on in life have to coexist and the danger with allocating specific space is that you reduce people's ability to then respond well, to those circumstances. So I'm pretty confident that, that uh, we can continue to support the welcome growth in uh, bicycle numbers and its, uh, in, and its reintroduction as a sort of very uh, sensible and, and standard method of getting around. By creating a low-speed traffic environment, where it then feels much safer, because once traffic is moving as it is in Pointon at, at 13 to 14 miles an hour, you feel quite comfortable moving amongst even large trucks, because the, it's, it's a speed that's compatible with, with movement. When traffic speeds are, are higher than, say, 30 miles an hour, that's when you need to allocate separate space. But 30 miles an hour is not an appropriate speed for most urban areas, most towns. So it's a debate that goes on. I mean, I, I'm very cautious of, of being too dogmatic about how you resolve the allocation of space in, in cities because you have to allow yourself to respond to different circumstances. What, wait so a some of our schemes are, are, are you have, saying? Yeah. Are you saying you actually apply judgment and thinking based on the circumstance? Sure. I mean, every, I, I, I've never followed any standard, uh, rules or, or guidelines at all. We, we, we just build up a little bit more experience each time and, and, and apply that. But it's, I never bother to read any, any guidelines. It's interesting to me because in talking to you and in running into people who are like you, that is a subtly radical shift from the vast majority of the engineering profession. Oh, and it's really simple. We're just asking people, to think and use their yeah. own judgment. Isn't that what we went to school for? I mean, isn't that what <laughs> right, brought yes. us into this profession in the first place? Yeah, I was, I was very struck by that. In my, I had a brief and a happy time uh, 15 years ago teaching in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. And I, for various, uh, by chance circumstances, I had a job teaching at the design school in the morning and at MIT with some traffic engineers in the afternoon. And I was always amazed by the contrast between the two. My lecture plan for the morning with the design school would go off beam within five minutes. People would object to, you know, throw in <laughs> something else, object to what I was saying, move off in a different direction. 
it was great. But by the time of the election, it had, it, it had ended nowhere near where I thought we'd started off in the first place. Right. And I would be, you know, it would be stimulating and exhausting in the same, the same part. But then in, in the afternoon, at these, with these traffic engineers, I would say all sorts of outrageous things. And these engineers would sit and quietly tap in what I said into their laptops. Yeah. And close them up at the end of the session and walk out there. And I, anybody, anybody disagree with me? Right. Nope. <laughs> and they say nothing. And, and I remember ringing up Hans Mondermann in despair and saying, uh, yeah, Hans, uh, you know, these guys won't engage. They won't question me. They don't doubt anything I or, or argue. And he said, You don't understand. The traffic engineers are training to be photocopiers. <laughs> That's what they want to become. Right. You right. won't expect a response any more than if you put your new novel in a photocopier and ask, you won't comment on it, it'll just photocopy it. Right. So there is a tendency for one end of uh, engineering, unfortunately, particularly engineering end, to assume that education is about acquiring the knowledge of which page or what regulation there's a detail of a roundabout or a signal or something. And then you know, you know, you have that power. Right. And of course, you know, more liberal education approaches say that is not what education is. Education is didactic. It's about challenging the assumptions of your predecessors and by doing so, learning and, and, and developing experience. So it's very encouraging that the Institution of Civil Engineers in Britain has put out a document called Highway Risk and Liability, a very boring name for a very boring document, but it says an extremely important thing. It says that you know, if you're going to be trained and paid a decent salary to be an engineer, you should rely on your own judgment, not on the application of somebody else's judgment. Right. You have to think for yourself. Yeah. And so long as you think for yourself and have demonstrated that you've taken a professional judgment you are not liable right. you're not negligent right so you're you won't get sued because even if something dreadful happens and there's an accident or a mistake so long as you have exercised professional judgment you're not liable right and it's a very important issue particularly in the states we've actually had the same you know we were looking just to narrow some lane widths and in one city I was working in and the city engineer and the public works director were pushing back really hard. And the club they were using to beat us over the head with was liability. You're, you're exposing the city to enormous liability. Well, I just did an end around and contacted the city's insurance provider and said, here's what we're doing. Here's my four pages of justification for why we're going down to a narrower lane width, including the yeah. fact that we believe it's going to be safer. Do you have any concerns? And they said, wow, this is one of the best policies we've ever seen. Go forth. Yeah. We don't have any concern with this as long as you have some justification for what you're doing. Yeah. I had a brief visit with the uh, director of um, transportation for New York City. I can't quite remember her, the name of her post. Jeanette um, Sadek Khan? Uh, yes. Uh, with her uh, staff, a, l a large uh, number of, of engineers there saying, well, you know, we, we, we can't really do this because it would be exposing the municipality to, to liability. And I made that point that you're not, so long as you um, exercising good professional judgment, there's no way that you're exposing yourself to liability. And all of the lawyers uh, put their arms around and said, yes, right. wow, we've been saying this for years. Right. You know, the, the safety is not about repeating what you've done last year. Right. It's about using your judgment. On that score, I would love to see, this is a little challenge for some American municipalities. I, I, I understand there are still municipalities in America that discourage jaywalking. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've seen. You know, I've been, I've been, I've been ticketed for jaywalking. And yeah, you, <laughs> you were. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, the state of California, or whatever it is. Um, I would love to see uh, what's it called—a class action. Somebody will take a state to yeah. to to the courts in the event of a pedestrian injury or death, and sue the state for increasing the danger for, to, to pedestrians by discouraging jaywalking. Right, right. In my view, a state could be found liable for pedestrian deaths if they outlaw jaywalking. Right. And that would be an interesting judgment. That would be. Okay, vision impaired. The critique is that, okay, shared space is great if you can see, but my sight is limited and yeah. I'm walking out and there's cars everywhere and it, you know, I, I can't have the eye to eye contact that other people have that gives those human signals that it's okay to go, it's okay to walk. I, I know yeah. you've addressed this, but could you address it for the, the listeners? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a big subject, so it's difficult to deal with in a soundbite, but. The whole question of how we in, improve the accessibility and comfort and safety levels for people with disabilities of all sorts, of which um, uh, partial sight or blindness is, is one, is a, is a whole big question. And, and, and there's a great scope for creative designers to help introduce the navigational the techniques and, and, and landmarks and so on that allow somebody who isn't relying on, on their sight to know where they're going and to know what's happening around them and to move around. Whatever the uh, traffic environment, moving around when you've got partial sight is not going to be easy. But the whole emphasis of shared space is on reducing the speed of traffic and increasing driver awareness so that the environment, whoever you are moving around, becomes safer. What we've found with schemes is that talking with Working with individual people who have uh, uh, sight impairment of one sort or another, uh, we find very useful because it, it helps us inform us about this, the schemes that we, we produce. We rarely talk to the representative bodies because they tend to stick to a standard party line and are, are, are the refugees for the mediocre. It, it discourages thinking, right. hard thinking. Right. But the, the thing that, that's important in this debate about for the, for the blind is that shared space is not about influencing or changing the behavior of pedestrians. It's about changing drivers. We just want pedestrians to behave like and pedestrians do. I mean, right. it's a walker, like the like the Jews of Tel Aviv, if you, you know, if you live the Yeah. Just you want to cross the road, walk across the road. And you don't need to make eye contact with a driver to do that. You've just got to make it clear what you're doing and, and, and where you're going. The important thing is to influence drivers so that drivers, all of whom are sighted, you can't drive a car unless you have good sight. That's true. You have to be sighted to drive a car. And it's, 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 it, eye contact is, is mis often misunderstood. It means the drivers use their eyes and other senses to respond and communicate with their surroundings. And that's why Poynton works so well. It's not because... Blind people are making contact with, uh, with, with, with when they cross the road. They just cross the road. And it's pretty obvious. We're very sensitive to the needs of people with disabilities and people, blind people and so on, or children or whatever. And drivers in Poynton are, are not only looking for individuals, but understanding the particular circumstances of those individuals. And that's why the total environment of the, the urban area becomes safer. A lot of um, blind people ask me, well, how do I... How do I know when a car has stopped to let me cross? 
Well, I'm afraid, as things stand, you never can. You can't. Uh, even on a signal-controlled traffic signal, the fact that there's a, you know, the, the lights change or it's beeping or the knobs turning doesn't tell you the car has stopped. It tells you that the lights have changed. This right. is a different thing. Right. You can't tell. You can't be sure that the car has stopped. Uh, what you can say is that there is a danger that um, a, a traffic signal is giving a driver a green light. Think about it. Giving a driver a green light in a city to say, and what a green light means is you're safe to go. Right. Go Guys. ahead. Go ahead. Don't worry about it. It's your turn. And just maybe a blind person walking across the street, but that's their lookout. Right. Now, that's what we're trying to change is to say, uh-uh, if you're driving a car in a city, you're, you have to watch out for what you're doing. Yeah. And we, we find that if you do so, it doesn't penalize you as a driver because actually journey times become better, safer, and certainly more enjoyable. Well, that was going to be the third, the, the last critique I was going to give you. Just a general pushback of, okay, Ben, you, you are just creating congestion and you're going to wreck my commute and I'm not going to be able to get to where I want to go. And now I've sure. got to stop for every pedestrian. What would you say to uh, people who are worried that this is just going to create traffic nightmares? Well, simple. Come and look at a few schemes. Come and look at Poynton. <laughs> Everybody said That's that about fair. Poynton. Yeah. They said, you're joking. You, you're going to reduce the approach lanes in this junction from three lanes to one? You're going to take out the traffic signals? You're going to let people cross the road? You're crazy. You're going to be traffic stacked up as far as Manchester. Well, just come and look. Right. The journey times have dropped spectacularly. The queues have dropped. Can, can you, case, can it takes you just much talk, less time to get through the town than it, it did before. That's so counterintuitive because you're actually driving slower. But can you just maybe explain? It's essentially because you don't have to stop at a junction, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. And that continuous low speed, say, you know, 12, 13, 14 miles an hour, gives you in urban areas better journey times than 30 miles an hour. Right. Because, because your journey time is determined by the efficiency of the junction and junctions work more efficiently at low speeds. So instead it, of sitting at a red light, waiting for your turn to drive 30 miles an hour, you can just drive everywhere at 15 yeah. miles an hour. You have the old children's story of the tortoise and the hare, yes. you know, whatever those variations of it. But it, continuous slow movement gives you better journey times than the stop-start movement associated with, uh, with the car. And, and it, it is interesting to observe that one of the – dreams of engineers throughout the last century if you look at the minutes of the uh, american board of engineers in 1920 they were convinced that if there were any clear pedestrians out of the way then jenny times across urban areas could go up to 50 60 70 miles an hour it simply didn't happen right. jenny times across cities have remained constantly at 9 10 11 12 miles an hour yeah. why because it depends on the efficiency of intersections and nothing else as a final thing, a couple months ago, you posted on Facebook a link to a book called Zero Night, The Untold Story of World War II's Most Daring Great Escape. And, and you did this because there's an important person that's featured in it. <laughs> I got the book. I read it. One of the most fascinating stories I've ever read. But I, I want to give you an opportunity to explain who this guy is and, and why this was an important event. It refers to my father, my late father, uh, Jock Hamilton Bailey, who was is on the cover of, of the book. He was a young engineer at the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. He went to France uh, in the first boat out to France to face the threatened invasion from Germany, and he was he didn't make it to Dunkirk. He was taken prisoner on the 
uh, French coast at the fall of France in May 1940. And he spent the next five years in a prisoner of war camp in, in Germany. During that time, he, I suppose he really sort of kept himself sane, but he enjoyed himself by thinking hard about how to stay in the war, how to stay active. And he was a professional soldier, and he felt, you know, this, this was important to continue to participate in some way. And so he escaped on three occasions. He wound up in Colditz Castle at the end of the war and was uh, relieved by the American troops in April 1945. But one of the most interesting escapes in which he played a part was the so-called Warburg wire job of 1943, where for the first time they began to concentrate on mass escapes rather than individual escapes, how you would rattle the cage, as it were, and divert badly needed resources to make to looking after them would be to get as many people out of a camp at once as possible. And the Warburg in, w- escape was interesting, and they devised a way to go over the wire rather than under or through the wire. And this required the design of a scaling, a series of set of scaling ladders, which could be the lights could be fused and the uh, ladders run up against a wire, and well-trained, fit young men run up one behind the other over these wires and to disappear into the darkness. And it was a fairly risky escape, but they did manage to, to both control the, were able to fuse the security lights uh, at will, a fact they kept hidden from their guards, but used it well on the night. He had, he had as a, as a schoolboy, I think, a love of uh, medieval history, and he was interested in how soldiers would attack a castle in medieval areas and the use of scaling ladders. And I think he used that uh, interest uh, effect to create a, a light, easily erected set of scaling ladders, uh, which was indeed, it, it worked very well. And um, 30 men got out of the camp in 90 seconds, of whom three got home to the UK, which is a remarkably good record. I have to say, I was disappointed as I was reading the book that your father, who they called HB, that was his uh, yeah. moniker, HB didn't get to go. He designed no. this great contraption. They kept it hidden in the in the music room in plain yeah. sight and would practice on it. And then erected th- three more the day before they broke out. And he was not one who got to go because he had bad knees, right? Well, it, when he was taken prisoner in, in France, he was injured in the hips and knees. Uh, he re- recovered, but he, he went to his grave with uh, quite a lot of shrapnel in his legs and, and hips and had a, had a bullet through the kneecap which uh, from which he was still recovering in 1943. It was an escape that required very athletic men to not only be able to run over this, this wire quickly, but then to uh, drop down a trapeze bar and sprint for about a thousand yards in full pack. And he never, he was never a particularly athletic, uh, type, but more importantly, he was also keen that this would not be just be one escape, but they were also planning to break a whole number of tunnels at the same moment. And his skills were needed on tunneling techniques, which he was very good at. And he was building a, a tunnel, which unfortunately was, was discovered by the, it, uh, a man was killed whilst tunneling. He was electrocuted and they had to, um, alert the Germans to it in the hope that they would save his life by digging it up. So his tunnel failed, but nevertheless, the tunnels were all part of an attempt to try and 
really worry their guards that they needed to spend much more resources on looking after these men and that in turn would divert uh, resources from the Eastern Front or the other important theaters of war. That was the thing that was most inspiring was the fact that a lot of these guys had been captured, essentially buying time for the people to get out of Dunkirk, then wound up here. And instead of just sitting out the war, they they were smuggling messages out to let people know what was going on. And they were smuggling maps in because they were using them in their escapes. They were trying to keep this third front, in a sense, going. Your dad yeah. actually, in one of his escapes, wound up yards away from Switzerland yeah. uh, and then was he, um, was disappointingly <laughs> apprehended kind of at the last moment. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a nice story. Really. He, he, he made a solo escape from a camp called Tittmoning uh, near the Austrian border near Salzburg in 1941. He managed to keep his uh, absence hidden for a couple of days, so he had a good head start before they started looking for him. And he walked uh, for 13 nights, walking by night, sleeping by day, through uh, the Alps, roughly following the course of the Inn River, through Kunosai, which today is now skiing territory, but it was very empty and isolated, very easy to hide away in the woods and to make progress. And he reached, with his hand-drawn map and a little compass, managed to find the uh, Swiss border and uh, cross the stream which marks the Swiss border where it joins the inn and thought, well, I'm in Switzerland now um, and about 200 yards in along the river, climbed up the bank thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm well into Switzerland by right. now and was, was caught by an Austrian sentry at that point and said, hang on a minute, I'm in Switzerland. He said, no, you're not. And he showed, they showed him a detailed map and one little field in the past had been bought by an Austrian farmer from a Swiss neighbor. And he was still in Austria and they were quite legitimately caught him, which wow. was a shame for him, but probably quite lucky for me because I wouldn't have existed. Otherwise, my father met my, his future brother-in-law in Kolditz. So. Oh, really? Really? There we go. Wow. Yeah, my uncle was also in Kolditz and escaped with him from a previous camp. And Kolditz was uh, the place they sent all the, the worst the escapees. Boys, right? Yeah, the, the yeah. people who were a pain in their neck because they kept Yeah, well, my, my uncle, Lawrence Pumphrey, uh, was taken prisoner in Crete in 1941 and uh, had a photograph with him of his younger sister. My father was an only child. I don't think he'd ever had a girlfriend really before the war. And uh, my father was besotted with this photograph and okay. begged him to have her address, uh, which he wouldn't give him. <laughs> but after the war, my, uh, my uncle got married uh, pretty much straight away, as many people did after the war, and invited my father to be to his bed wedding as best man. And the romance blossomed. And it was the photo. The, 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 your photo, the photograph. Oh, yeah. my goodness. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, and, uh, I, I was going to ask but, you as an epilogue to talk about your father going back and having the keys because that was one of those <laughs> – you realize that they had the goods in many ways. But can you just tell that story because I, I think it's one of those yes, charming it, ones. When, when, he, when he got to Colditz, Colditz, of course, became a kind of um, a, an academy of escapers. There were so many people with experience and skills all together in one place. They become very, very good at making life – a nuisance for their heavily, they were heavily guarded. There was one-to-one -one ratio of guards to prisoners in Colditz. But he became the camp burglar. All my youth, he was very good at picking locks. He could always pick any any lock very quickly. Um, useful if we'd forgotten our key to our bicycle or something. But he spent his time stealing or forging keys to the castle and has a collection of them. Uh, well, I, ha I have them now, since his death. And 
when the uh, Berlin Wall came down and Germany was reuni reunited, I took the opportunity to take him and my mother and my brother back to Kolditz Castle. And when we arrived, the charming curator of the place took us up to the old prison's quarters. And as we entered, said, oh, I'm so sorry. I've uh, just remembered we've handed the keys over to a local contractor for some immediate repairs. And I haven't got them. And I can't let you in. I'm so sorry. And my father reached in his pocket and <laughs> produced his clangling bunch of keys from 50 years ago. And they still worked. And he managed to break back into Kolditz. Yeah. Uh, uh, it didn't surprise him at all, but it delighted the curator and delighted us. That's amazing. Well, Ben Hamilton Bailey, it's, it's so nice to talk to you again. I'm sure I will get a lot of uh, email response on this one, and maybe we can have a chance to follow up on that at some point in the future. It'll be a pleasure. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you so much. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Right. What did he say? He said, as his edge, I know. He only chopped him down because he couldn't see the view no more. What's he moaned What did he say? He said, an edge is an edge. He only chopped it down because it's for his view. What's Reaper moaning about? Right. Look, I appreciate your position, Mr. Webley, but you can't go around chopping down other people's hedges without permission. Ah, bones. Ah, bones. Yes, I suppose. Thank you. Right. All right. right. Mr. Webley, I trust you have a license for that firearm. I don't for this one. Does for this one. He does for this one. What do you mean by this one?